Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great movies, so many great conversations. But it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We had some great films in Season 8 that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we covered from season one up through our current season. For part of season eight, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968. We talked about 2001 and 2010 for our Odyssey series, both adapted from Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Man, the second one was so much better than the first, right? Don't you even get me started. <sighs> Need I bring up Under the Cherry Moon again? Yes, also so much better. <laughs> wait, wait, no, that's not what I... <sighs> Planet of the Apes kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films. Wait, wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard? They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books. I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <laughs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel. And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver! We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight. We haven't talked about Gaslight. Stop gaslighting me! <laughs> Dive deeper into these books and more adapted films at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
the next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that right there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we're kicking off a new series in the new year, celebrating 50 years of the grand exploration of Kubrick and Clark's 2001, A Space Odyssey. Welcome to voice print identification. When you see the red light go on, would you please state in the following order. Your destination, your nationality, and your full name. Moon, American, Floyd. Haywood R. Thank you. You are cleared through voice print identification. I do. Quite frankly, we have had some very reliable intelligence reports that quite a serious epidemic has broken out at Clears. I know there have been some conflicting views held by some of you regarding the need for complete security. Something apparently of an unknown origin. However, I accept the need for absolute secrecy in this. This is in fact what has happened. We thought it might be the upper part of some buried structure, so we excavated out on all sides, but unfortunately we didn't find anything else. And hasn't been covered up by natural erosion or other forces. It seems to have been deliberately buried. Four million-year-old black monolith has remained completely inert, except for a single, very powerful radio emission. Three weeks ago, the American spacecraft Discovery One left on its half-billion-mile voyage to Jupiter. The sixth member of the Discovery crew was the HAL-9000 computer. Everything is going extremely well. One gets the sense that he is capable of emotional responses. Well, hell, I'm dead about anything wrong. No 9000 computer has ever made a mistake or distorted information. But, Dave, I can't put my finger on it, but I sense something strange about it. Just a moment. Just a moment. Do you know what happened? I'm sorry, Dave. I don't have enough information. Made radio contact with him yet. The radio is still dead. Hello, Hal. Do you read me? Hello, Hal. Do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Do you read me, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. All right, Andy. You, the last thing you said to me before I blacked out was that you could prep for this show that we're doing right now for weeks and never be ready how do you feel this is a this is one of those big movies pete yeah this is one of the big ones yeah and there's a lot it's it's such an interesting film because there's just so so many theories so many um uh, uh forms of discussion that you could have about the film um and its history and what it means and who it's affected and influenced and kind of where it came from it's just it's a big film and it's kind of one of the greats because of that and um you know i i think it, it is one of those films that's just like it's hard to pick a point to just start the conversation really um but i think what would be interesting is, is look at our history with 2001 um my my first experience with 2001 um, without ever realizing where it was from, had to be from Sesame Street. Um, what? <laughs> yeah, really. What? Which number was it? Was it the number nine? What are the numbers? It would play "Thus Spake Zarathustra," and it would go up to this big number, or, or maybe it was ten. I don't remember what the number one, the, what the number was, and it would pan up and and or tilt up, and you would see the uh, whatever the number was, and then the deep booming voice would say nine. Or whatever the number was. Oh, and was it like in the shape of a monolith? Yes, and it was in the shape of a monolith. I totally that's remember that now. That's exactly I remember it. That. You uh, exactly it's going to drive me right. nuts now. I can't remember what it is. But yep. anyway, one of our listeners can find that and send it to us. I'd love to know. That was probably my first experience with it, which is so funny 
that um, I, I it would come up all the time or however often it did on Sesame Street. And I never liked it <laughs> because the music was dark and foreboding and it didn't have that Muppety feel. And so I just never really dug it. Although as an adult now, I can appreciate what Henson and his team was trying to do. Um, and then I think my next experience was probably high school. My buddy um, who was into much uh, more thinky sorts of movies than me he, uh, we rented it um, and he wanted to show it to me and i totally passed out it was definitely not something that i could sit through with my little <laughs> high school brain it wasn't really until college that i watched it um, i had a friend who it was his favorite film and kubrick was his favorite director and i i watched it more and i ended up doing my senior thesis on it and so i watched it quite a bit for that and wrote about it and studied it and read the source material and um i really at that point gained an appreciation for it and it took a long time but but once i kind of hit that point it's been nothing but uh just kind of strength and growth from that point point on and it's just something that is uh, like i almost don't need to watch it like i can totally picture everything that's happening in it it's just so funny but um but man do i love it now yeah, I I am on the opposite end of the spectrum with this movie. It it is a movie that I don't enjoy. I I don't enjoy by a lot uh, to watch it, and uh, I I but I do enjoy thinking about it, and I enjoy uh, talking about it. I I think you know I've been trying to kind of frame my position on this movie, and it's so interesting how it got made, and particularly how it got written between uh, Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. You know, what what is original material in this case, right? That they were written sort of side by side, and to hear, you know, the Kubrickians tell the story, and to hear the Clarkians tell the story, they're, they're essentially different stories about who sort of owned the narrative, but it was largely a partnership between the two, and that the, the book was, according to Clarke, intentionally uh, sort of written with a head start. And I find that I am much more of a Clarkian fan of 2001. I enjoy the book so much more than the movie. And I think it's because it gives me so much of what Kubrick stripped away and what they elected to strip away in in the the movie. Um, it still has the thematic elements, but it is a much more uh, sort of, for me, an engaging narrative, something that I can really sink my teeth into and just really dig into. So... I, I find it, I, I actually, I'm nervous to talk about it with you because I know how important this movie is to you, and it's not a movie I enjoy watching. It is a painful experience to me, even as I ingest and digest all of the source material and the theories and things that I like thinking about. And I find that there is a, a sort of cast of film lovers that diminish people like me when I say that it's too long and it's pretentious and it's it's troublesome direction. And this is the side of Kubrick that I don't like. I'm much more of a of a Dr. Strange love uh, than I am a 2001 uh, Kubrick fan that obviously they just say, oh, well, you don't get it and you don't like challenging films and you don't like to think. So, you know, that's fine. You can go watch Jumanji again. I do like the story and I like what it's it's trying to do. I just don't get the hue and cry about the quality of the film because I don't see it. It's, it's interesting to hear. Um, I, well, obviously I disagree <laughs> with yeah, you. Yeah. Um, You'll know this is not one like the Ocean series where I just want to yell and scream a lot. I, I really don't. I am deeply interested to hear your perspective here. 
Well, it's so funny because I, I feel like I want to yell and scream after hearing all of that. <laughs> uh, but before that, breaking news, it was not Sesame Street. It was The Electric Company. Oh, man. And it was an animated... Here, let me read this. It was an animated short set in outer space and used to introduce segments involving a phonic. It was a large rectangular pillar of rock that was shown disturbed by aliens or astronauts, then shuddering and collapsing during a music bed of the entire opening fanfare of also Sprach Zarathustra. The letters of the phonic would appear from the clearing dust and a basso voice would pronounce it uh, like I said. And similar, it would be things like, um, I, I don't know what phonics it would do, but anyway, that's what it was. It was the monolith okay. segment. All right. So I was also a big fan of Electric Company. So I was too, I'm yes. with you. I'm there right you with go. you. All right. It's uh, so 2001. I mean, I, I totally get it. It's I mean, it took me a while to get into this film. It was not something that I found very uh, palatable. It was not easy to digest. It's, you know, I, I guess I would have viewed it probably early on as a thinking man's film. You know, it, you basically have to sit there and think the whole time. I think it says it best when I, I brought this to the New Year's Eve party for our group of friends uh, going from 2000 to 2001. I'm like, oh, let's put this on wall. While we're sitting oh, around, Jesus. Uh, Andy, and, and we're, I mean, Andy. we're not. Nobody's sitting there watching it. This is the thing. It's like nobody was even watching it. It was just on as just background filler. I'm like, it's background filler. No one's going to be paying attention to it. It doesn't matter. It'll be fun. But it wasn't. It was probably a half hour, and somebody finally said, "What is this movie? It's been like a half hour, and it's just a bunch of monkeys jumping around." <laughs> So needless to say, the movie got shut off and they just put on music instead. So, oh, Andy, it, I, <laughs> I love that. I'm not sure. I mean, it says a lot about your party. It says just a whole lot about you, my friend. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, and I thought it would be a fun, fun thing to do, you know, but clearly the wrong audience. You have to know your audience, Pete. <laughs> Read the room, buddy. Read the room. <laughs> oh, my. So anyway. Um, it's, it is a film that, that takes patience to watch and, uh, requires, uh, you know, a lot of thinking and just absorbing. It certainly is not a film that I would put on in the evening to, to watch because it will put me to sleep, uh, faster than most things. It's really, uh, it is a, a slow, uh, long film and it's a very quiet film. There's hardly any dialogue. Yeah. yeah. Why, why do you enjoy that experience? The experience of putting on a movie that you love, knowing that it will put you right to sleep. It's a film that I enjoy because I. it's not that it, it puts me to sleep and I like that. It's a film that I, I, I get to revel in the opportunity to just kind of take in what Kubrick is doing and enjoy kind of the way that things are playing out and uh, just kind of just have time to reflect on it as it's happening. And, and so, I mean, watching, like when I went to see the 70 millimeter presentation, it was a noon show and, uh, or 11 AM, I can't remember, but it was, it was midday and that was great. You know, I, I got to sit there and really just take everything in on the big screen and just absorb it. Um, and uh, like, that is the way to watch this movie where you really get to just kind of sit and, and see what's happening and, and kind of revel in the storytelling. I just, I think there's a lot of interesting things that Kubrick is doing here. And and don't get me wrong. I love the book too. I think that the way that Clark uh, wrote it and the additional material he has in it is really interesting. I guess I just enjoy what Kubrick did leave out. Unlike you, I'm, I'm very much the flip side. I think it's fun that he left a bunch of stuff out and kind of forces you to, you know, have to stew on this one a bit more and, and, and kind of come up with theories. 
Yeah, I uh, that's not why I go to movies generally. And and I should say, I mean, I think, you know, after seven years of doing this, I like talking about movies and thinking about theories and looking at what they're what these things are saying. This movie is so heavy on that spectrum uh, that it it I lose interest too quickly in the narrative itself to be able to engage in in like thinking about it. Like I when I go to sleep in a movie, I feel like that's a sign of weakness in the film, not in me. Well, to be fair, I fall asleep in movies all the time. Well, <laughs> if they, I start, if you I start watch anything, them at one in the morning, man. If I that's... start anything at eight o'clock, I'm guaranteed yeah. to fall asleep. <laughs> that's the old man in me. I just can't take it anymore. But that's a tagline for this movie, 2001. You've been falling asleep to it since 1972. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, well, I, I mean, I, it maybe it's telling that the very first time I did try watching it, I totally fell asleep. Exactly. Exactly. I, but it's it, I don't know. I guess I do like this type of movie. It's funny because people would probably compare this movie to things like Malick's Tree of Life. I was or, just going to say that. And you yeah. are a, uh, you are not a person who is in the Tree of Life camp. I am not in the Tree of Life camp. I, I, I here's am very the much not in the Tree of Life. No, camp. I, here's the difference, though, I think. I think Malick likes to make films that are much more of a tone poem type of film that bounce around different times and places and have people saying like poetic things that mean uh, something, I suppose. But it just feels very much like he's taking <laughs> that in. That was a nice dig, by the way. <laughs> you like that? <laughs> he's, he's creating a tone. And he's still saying something like Kubrick. And I think in Tree of Life, he very much is kind of going through this whole spectrum of life and everything. But it's that it's that poetic version of it that I really just have a struggle with because I, I don't dig that type of uh, metaphorical poetry where there's all sorts of like dinosaurs and then uh, Jessica Chastain swinging upside down and then <laughs> uh, whispers. And it just it was like it was like beating my head and i'm sure that some people feel the same way with this film but i guess this film is enough of a straight story from beginning to end that i can i can watch it and it's just a journey it's just a quieter journey and it's one that allows me to think more about what's happening does that make sense as far as the difference there yeah no i it, it absolutely does and that is a a fair and uh, i think just definition uh of of why you are attracted to this over the other um I, I want to get into a little bit of what uh, what you find Kubrick is doing that's, that's really great here, because I feel like we have had conversations on this show where some of the violations of, um, you know, pacing and, um, you know, and, and shot length and things that that are in, just in the in the pure production of it, we have called out as pain points. Uh, where the film could have been more efficient, could have told the story in a more efficient way. I still land on that side of the argument with this film, that there is a story here that could be told in an efficient way that still offers you the ability to have this sort of five million year journey through humanity uh, and, and actually, you know, help get the thing done in shorter strokes. You're probably right. But I think the difference is that film could be made, but I don't know if that film would be as memorable. I don't. It was called Independence that... Day. What? <laughs> it's called 2010. <laughs> I can't wait to talk about that movie, Andy. Spoiler. <laughs> It's it very much is it's it's I think that's kind of where some of the difference is is I think that the way that Kubrick chose to approach this film. Clearly, it's not a film for everybody, but I do think that he um, chose to tell it in a way that, um, you know, 
he stepped back more, which kind of requires you to step forward more. You can't just sit in a movie theater and just watch it like Independence Day or something else. It's not going to be as straightforward. Um, and but, you know, I don't know, even at the time it came out, I mean, plenty of people, critics and audiences found it to be totally pretentious. And I think people probably still still feel that way with this film. But I think I, they I, do. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I, I don't know. I guess it's just one of those things where just the way that he structured his shots, um, the way that he, you know, the, all the, the lining up of things, the way that he centers images within the screen, the concept of the monolith that he chose to use instead of kind of the, the pyramid that was in the novel, um, the, the, the way that he depicts the future world and kind of all of the effects that he came up with to kind of create this world that felt so real. Um, compared to anything else that had been coming out science fiction wise in the sixties. Um, the, the way that he was kind of looking at, um, uh, man and how technology is changing man to, to be more robot like and how, uh, I mean, a lot of people talked about how Hal, the computer system is the most, you know, interesting character in the film. And that's because he's much more of a character and the other, all the people are much more robotic. Um, you know, and even going into the the uh, the um, uh, the end, the Stargate, and everything, when you get kind of that that crazy trippy journey, it's I mean, it's long, and that I mean that that for me is always the part I struggle with the most. But I do find it visually just stunning, and it's a really interesting thing that he goes through there. Um, honestly, that's the one part that for me, if anything, that I would shorten is the is the the trip through the the light, fantastic, basically mm-hmm. that he's doing there. I don't know if you saw Solaris, the original version yeah. of that yep. film mm-hmm. that uh, Tarkovsky did, but that's another long one. In fact, yeah. longer than this one, and I would argue uh, more tedious to watch because I would agree, you're staring at full. <laughs> you're staring at re- weeds in the water for like ten minutes, and then you're yeah. driving through a tunnel of lights for like half hour. Yeah, that film seems to take forever, um, which might be the reason that I have not journeyed through any other Tarkovsky films because it's a real struggle. Right. Hard work. But I, I feel like by the time I get to uh, that point in, in the film toward, toward the end, when we're hitting kind of that uh, uh, Stargate, I feel like, you know, he's done so much great stuff up to this point that, you know, I'll give that to him and it ends up being fine to go through that journey with Bowman as he's kind of, flying through it um only to come out on the other side um i i don't know i like it i i find myself drawn to it more and more every time i watch it talk to me about your favorite sequence we do we don't really have a deep scene dive here but this this movie has a number of of uh, key sequences and they're all sort of anchored around the monolith uh, but they're all told in sort of unique visual styles and tones and certainly production design what which one stands out to you as the one that that you connect with the most and why Generally, you're going to find most people connecting with the uh, the mission when we're when we finally join the ship um, after the moon, and we we come to uh, meet Bowman and Poole as they mm-hmm. are on their journey to Jupiter. That really is kind of the the main story of the film, and that's I think the part that most people are going to connect with, and certainly it's the part that I connect with the most. You know, I find Hal uh, just a, a fascinating character. Me too. Yeah. The way that that whole story um, unfolds is just really really interesting, and um, I mean, you know, it, it gets incredibly tense as Bowman is trapped outside the ship, and Hal won't let him in, and finally, it's like this conversation is pointless, and 
ends it. You know, that's yeah. just like amazing stuff. And then the way that Bowman gets back in the ship. And really, I think one of the most powerful scenes for me is when he shuts Hal down and just, you know, as he's singing T for two, it's really touching. And I think that is because Hal, like I said earlier, is the character that you end up kind of having that connection with. And that is the ultimate sort of story for me, which is the, you know, when you look at the overall arc of, of the film and you look at, at one of the major themes of the film, which is, you know, what is, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean for, um, you know, for creatures to take power and change the narrative forever, right? Which is what we get in the very beginning when these creatures, these sort of prehistoric creatures take power in the form of the first weapon and change the arc of development forever and and they really lean heavily in that in the book too that this was a this was a a species that was on the verge of you know extinction and the act of coming into contact with the monolith changed uh changed their spark uh and and changed their direction and so each one of these segments we get this little piece of you know how does how does interaction with the monolith how does humanity um, and humanity's interaction with technology actually change the arc of future history. And I really, I like that. I like that, uh, um, you know, how bold it is to try and capture that narrative in the film and in the book. Like, it's it's an audacious attempt. Well, and and I think that it's it's a, uh, a, a nice direction for Kubrick to take. Um, I mean, you know, he was wanting to do an alien film. Somehow he, he, he saw this Japanese effects film called Warning from Space, and it kind of stirred in him this idea to do an alien film after Dr. Strangelove. And uh, through that, he met Arthur C. Clarke, and they started this relationship and, and developing the story. And he was really wanting to do a story about aliens. But with all the different uh, ideas they had for the alien characters, they never could quite hit on something that really worked. And he, I mean, Kubrick is a guy who I think, from listening to people talk about him, very much would figure out what he wanted, not by um, thinking about it beforehand, but by seeing examples of it. And I think that's why he ended up having to do so many takes all the time, because he was mm -hmm. really trying to do it until he saw the thing that, oh, that's what I've been looking for. Um, same with this. You know, he was going through all these different alien ideas and nothing worked. And and then um, I, I can't remember at what point, but they finally were just hit on this idea to just make the alien presence be kind of absent from the film although they're there but these monoliths they kind of put there to uh, help these species kind of get to the next step of evolution i think that's a really fascinating story i love that whole concept and the way that we watch mankind go from primitive apes to uh to humans uh to you know traveling through long journeys of space and eventually becoming the star child and kind of having that that uh, broader being, uh, I find a really fascinating journey. I, I do too. And it's, here's the thing I find really funny in the, one, one of the original cuts of the film, Kubrick had left in a narrator voiceover at the very end of the film. And in the script, it's a full sort of two, uh, three pages, two and a half pages of straight up narration of, you know, the narrator talking about this alien 
species, right? The, despite their godlike powers, they still watched over the experiments their ancestors had started so many generations ago. The companion of Saturn knew nothing of this as it orbited no man's land between Mimas and the outer edge of rings. It only had to remember and to wait to look forever sunward with its strange senses. And uh, and so it talks quite specifically about uh, this higher power, right, this alien power, and the alien power celebration of knowledge and intelligence and exploration, and that this monolith is somehow a, uh, you know, an instigator uh, as a way to propel that kind of interrogation, the instinct to interrogate and to explore in other species. They, They like watching species grow. And Kubrick left that in the cut, uh, according to my understanding, until the financiers had seen the movie and then took it out of the final cut, which I think is funny and ironic. And I don't know if it makes the movie better or worse. I wonder if that is the version that he played on the road show, because when he first released it, it was longer and it wasn't until it premiered. And then I think... Uh, it started its road show that he went in and, and cut out a hefty chunk. You yeah, know, and it, this is a hefty chunk. And and so the way it it opens here, this is on the the we're in orbit with uh, you know within uh, the, the narrator, right? And and so you know we're talking. It opens with for two million years, it circled Saturn, awaiting a moment of destiny that might never come. And of course, in the original cut, we went all the way to Saturn, like we do in the book, not in the movie. If you're wondering why I keep saying Saturn. Yeah, it's because in the final cut, it goes to Jupiter. So for those who didn't know that. Anyhow, then we get this note. The rest of the sequence is being worked on now by our designers. The intention here is to present a breathtakingly beautiful and comprehensive sense of different extraterrestrial worlds. The narration will suggest images and situations as you read it. Uh, and so that's then we launch into this, this massive uh, sort of treatise uh, that uh, is is in there that really describes very clearly what this whole thing has been about. Yeah. And it absolutely changes the tone and tenor of the movie. And I think it's that for people who love the movie, um, generally it's at the expense of the book, which leaves a lot of this in. Well, I mean, I haven't read the book since college. I do remember liking it quite a bit. And at the time, I felt like, you know, the book definitely helped me get a better grasp of what was happening in the film. Um but, you know, Kubrick is one of those directors who I, I can see why he would cut a lot of that stuff out, because he does want to make it a little bit more of a challenge. He doesn't want to tell audiences, oh, what was the quote that um, I heard that he said? Somebody asked him, um, you know, why he does stuff like that or something. And he's and he said something like uh, he, he, it was a reference to Mona Lisa. And yes. he said something about like, you know, would it, you know. Would you still enjoy it as much if if uh, he'd written on the back of it, you know, she's smiling because she's thinking about her lover or something like that, you know? Right. Which I think is interesting. You know, it it makes you ask the question, if you don't have those answers, why is she smiling? Um, and I, that's, I guess that's what I like about this is I, I feel like it, it, uh, allows me to just kind of come up with theories and ideas. And I love hearing all these different theories and, you know, the, the whole comparisons with Homer's The Odyssey or the whole idea that the monolith is a movie screen. And, and I, you know, it's, it's, it's fun that people, 
um, come up with these. And I don't know if they're accurate or not, but I, I think that it makes for interesting uh, conversation. I definitely want to talk about those those predominant theories. But first, the quote, I had it in the wrong tab. How could we possibly appreciate the Mona Lisa if Leonardo had written at the bottom of the canvas, the lady is smiling because she's hiding a secret from her lover? This would shackle the viewer to reality. And I don't want to want this to happen to 2001. That to me says everything. And that's why I love this so much. I get it. I think he should do that, but do it in less time. There's <laughs> uh, all these so, monkeys. So let's talk about it. <laughs> See, that's it. You've just defined the camps. <laughs> there are the people who believe that the monkeys are the uh, the dawn of of humanity, and people who believe, God, why are all these monkeys in here? Like, what's those are going the on? Why are uh, there no people? Can we talk uh, a little bit about a couple of the the? the major theories uh, about the the monolith and about the the overall uh what the hell is Kubrick trying to say theories let's okay so uh first you already mentioned the connection to homer's odyssey right uh, is that something that you've explored i haven't i don't know much about this theory in fact i didn't even know this theory was out there until i was with uh steve sarmento um watching the 70 millimeter presentation and he told me about it which kind of blew my mind because i'm like well of course it's titled yeah, a space odyssey how did i never put two and two together so yeah he's just like yeah it's like the you know he has to line up the planet uh jupiter and its moons with the monolith at the end just like uh, Odysseus has to shoot the arrow through the heads of the axes. Uh, and I'm just like, man, there's a lot here. Uh, oh, I yeah. clearly haven't explored. Well, and, and the parallels also, you know, you can use uh, Joseph Campbell to get to the, the thematic connections between the two really nicely. And the, the big connections are, you know, supernatural aid. We have this aid from this other, uh, you know, outside force. We have, you know, we're stuck in the belly of the whale, this abandoned ship in space and, uh, you know, atonement with the father, ultimate boon, right? That's the, the holy grail. We achieve the star child. You know, we finally complete the journey. Like these, these are wonderful thematic connections in the hero's journey and um you know if you explore these three properties it's like a puzzle that fits really beautifully together between the homer's ground odyssey maybe it's because they did they should have called it the sea odyssey uh, see then i would have totally clicked space it. yeah well I'm and, sure and um uh, hal is the cyclops Yes, how it absolutely hal is the yeah. cyclops the other is one that that was uh is a theory uh, of the monolith that was sort of, uh, I guess, pushed forward by Rob Ager and his work uh, on demystifying Kubrick's work. And he says it's all about the screen, baby. We're, we're all, we all should be watching 2001 as if we're watching it on Instagram uh, in portrait. Then we would get it. Well, I don't know if he's quite saying that, but he is he is saying, <laughs> he is saying that the monolith is Kubrick's representation of the movie screen and and we are the little apes that are are looking at it trying to figure out what this thing is. Um and I mean it's he has a, a very extensive theory and I believe he's got a, a DVD out or not a DVD but a, a digital file out where it, uh, I mean, it basically like 45 minutes or something of really kind of get, getting an in-depth look at uh, this theory. And, and I mean, he really pulls it uh, out and it's pretty interesting. Uh, it he's is actually, very interesting. Yeah. He's done like 10 videos on 2001. I mean, tons of stuff, um, plus tons of other films too. 
Right. And and so, I, you know, I really I like that theory. I don't you know, in terms of weighing many competing theories equally, um, I as a Clarkian fan of 2001, for me, it's always going to be the aliens and. Uh, you know, the the metaphor for a you know, I, I actually am a fan of the higher power, uh, you know, reaching down. It's it's so much more of a of a classical theme. Right. This is this is the gods from Mount Olympus reaching down and touching humans. Right. This is this is them influencing us. Right. That's what this story is for me, especially when we get to the final scene. Right. The way it's decorated, the way we have the fetishes in the corner that actually represent some of those uh, uh, those elements of of you know gods and humans interacting and demigods created to influence the the state of the natural world below and and I find that um, you know a connection I can really relate to um, I I feel like the the television screen thing is is, is probably more Kubrick and certainly less me but here's the thing that I think is important to remember is. You know, we can have both, you know, it can be the story that you just laid out, which I completely agree with, but I, it can also be this idea, this, this metaphorical mm-hmm. image that kind of represents the screen. And that's why I find it really fascinating is I think they all work in conjunction with each other. Yes. I don't think one yeah. negates the other at all. Let's talk, let's talk just a little bit about uh, getting back into the film itself, a little bit of the cast, uh, the uh, we've got a number of principal characters throughout each of the major times in uh, history that are portrayed on screen. Uh, the first one I do want to talk about is actually Daniel Richter, who plays the the chief man ape uh, in the book uh, and in the screenplay named Moonwatcher. Daniel Richter came to the film as a, he was I, I think a mime and a dancer, right? And actually came to. Uh, act as a consultant with Kubrick and didn't realize until he was in the middle of a uh, an, essentially an audition that he was actually auditioning to be in the film. Uh, and, and I find that wonderful. He was talking to Kubrick about how uh, to solve this problem of not looking like people in suits uh, and actually look like these sort of prehistoric people. And uh, and he said, well, I, I can do it. Give me a give me a leotard, some towels and 15 minutes. And they went over into a little soundstage and actually uh, and, and he essentially auditioned and went on to create the the eight people. Uh, and I think he was uh, I think he was exceptional. I, I think his he's an incredibly talented performer. It was great. Absolutely. Uh, it, he's like a, a precursor to Andy Circus. Uh, oh, you know, oh, God. You know what, Andy? That is amazing. That is I hadn't made that connection. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it's a, and I find that so fascinating that this is the guy who kind of essentially created that whole idea of kind of really kind of getting into that character because they had already started shooting some footage and Kubrick was so disappointed with how it was all looking because it just looked like people in monkey suits. And what Richter was able to do with these other mimes and dancers that they cast was really create creatures that felt like prehistoric apes. And I love that. And I think it helps that they came up with that modulated sound that they make when they're um grunting and screeching mm-hmm. and stuff it's it, the modulation i think also kind of lends it this this otherworldliness that i like quite a bit we move on from that period and uh, we're introduced to dr haywood floyd played here by william sylvester haywood uh, floyd is a central character in the book of 2001 and uh the following two books 
uh, in the series of four. Um, uh, although I have a hard time with William Sylvester as Haywood Floyd because he's not Roy Scheider. <laughs> shut up. I already want to tell you to shut up. That's so funny. I, I mean, you know, he's fine. I, I, his part of the film is, um, um, it's, it's, uh, it's getting from here to there as far as yes. the story goes. It works. Um, I've never been as enthralled with his part of the story and, and maybe it's just him, but I do like that there's this element with the Russians in there. And I feel like there's an interesting political game that's being played when they're sitting on the, uh, on the uh, space station that I do like quite a bit. Um, I, I guess I don't really have any problems specifically with William Sil- Sylvester and his part. Um, I think he, I think he's fine. It will be an interesting comparison though, talking about Roy Scheider next week, who, who continues the role of uh, Dr. Haywood R. Floyd as we uh, journey into 2010. I do love their conversation is right outside, like in the lobby of the Howard Johnson. Uh, like we could do we could do an awful lot of, uh, of you know, deep scene diving on just some of the brands that get thrown by. Uh, right. Which is which is wonderful. And Pan Am. It, Pan Am. Right. 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 And, uh, uh, you know, it's it is uh, of note in high tech legal circles that, uh, you know, in the big Samsung, um, uh, Apple, uh, iPhone design legal dispute that ran for years and years i think it's still running like one of the things that got thrown out was samsung trying to prove prior art by showing that essentially uh kubrick and the production design team of 2001 invented the iphone and ipad uh long before apple ever did because it's in this movie right it's the screen uh with your face lit up from the screen sort of that reverse shot and and uh you know there's some some wonderful little notes in there that that I think are are playing out today. So we move from there to uh, Jupiter. 18 months later. Uh, and we're introduced to Kier Delea as David Bowman and Gary Lockwood as Dr. Frank Poole. This is our second Lockwood. I know. Why are there so many Lockwoods? <laughs> we just had, well, I guess it was uh, it was back in June's film board with uh, yeah. uh, Lockwood and Jurassic ben, World. Ben Falling Lockwood. <laughs> Gary Lockwood. Gary Lockwood. That's awesome. Um, yeah, so here we are on Jupiter, and we've got three people who are asleep. The uh, the engineer scientist people are asleep, and we have Kier and Gary as Dave and Frank, and Douglas Rain is the voice of the Howl Nine Triple Zero. This is uh, this is where it happens. I, I I really enjoy the performances here, and I I actually really enjoy kind of the the robotic still stiff performances given by our guys here. I, I think that it says a lot about what Kubrick was seeing about, you know, how technology is affecting people and the way that he chose to have these two actors perform. It's really fascinating watching, uh, watching them react to videos when they're getting messages from home or when they're being interviewed or when they're talking to each other, they're just very stiff and robotic. And I find that so fascinating. And even Hal 9000 is obviously, very robotic because he is a machine, but, uh, but the way that Hal ends up kind of having this, this, uh, you know, breakdown and, and kind of having to, um, kind of keep secrets basically from these guys and, and puts the machine into the situation where it ends up having to basically kill them all so that it continues mission is so fascinating. So this definitely is the, the bulk of the film and it's, it's great. Akira Dulea, I, I think is just, great as Bowman. I love seeing him 
um, through the whole thing. I love him all the way as he goes through all the different ages at the end and finally becomes the the uh, star child. Really interesting stuff. Um, Gary Lockwood, I think, is fine as Poole. Um, you know, he's he's the uh, lesser of the two. Um, but I, I do also have to point out that I totally, uh, you know, so many people have been influenced by Kubrick, including me. In my short film, uh, The Weight, which we filmed at the airport, I totally uh, pulled a Kubrick shot. And when I have uh, the lead character played by uh, our friend Chad Stoops um, watching um, the lip reading of a guy sitting uh, or talking to the flight attendant and he's trying to read lips and I have the camera going back and forth. Totally stole that straight out of Kubrick uh, when when Hal is reading um, uh, Frank and Dave's lips. Um, God, totally we need to add that. that to the Wikipedia page of influences. Oh, we should totally should. I can't I'm, believe I'm sure. that's not already there. <laughs> Hal is such an interesting uh, character. And and again, you talk about influences of te- today's technology. I, I point you to uh, Google's uh, demo uh, of their latest Google Assistant at Google's uh, I/O conference this year, uh, where they they demonstrated the assistant, the voice assistant, calling a hairstylist, uh, a store shop. What do you call those people? A salon. It was a <laughs> salon called a salon, uh, and was making an appointment for someone else. And it said, hi, I am calling on behalf of somebody and I need to make an appointment. Do you have anything available for 1230? And the person on the other end presumably doesn't know they're being recorded and says, oh, uh, nothing at 1230 we could do before noon. Uh, and the computer says, um, uh, um, as if it's thinking this total human affectation that a computer doesn't do doesn't need to do but they programmed it to sound more lifelike and i found it rather jarring listening to hal say things i'm afraid i can't do that dave like those kinds of of that that sort of syntax is exactly what engineers right now are trying to duplicate to sound more human and i think that's the thing that makes people say that that hal is the most human character in here because it was designed to be uh, something that we as humans could relate to. That's what Google's doing right now. And it's kind of scary. It is very scary, and which I, I think also goes to show what they were thinking about as far as where technology would be by yeah. 2001 when the film took place and what is kind of in place and uh, or what was at least close. You know, I think they came up with some really interesting precursors. Um, and I think that's definitely one, you know, the, the artificial intelligence is getting pretty frightening and Hal is a great, uh, interpretation of that, um, from 50 years ago. And, and it's one of the, it, it is, I think the central element that prevents this film from being, from, from truly dating itself. Um, you know, that Hal is still something we haven't quite figured out, but it's so close uh, is is one of the elements that allows this to continue to be approachable to to modern audiences who like to think real real hard and can stay awake long enough to get there. <laughs> oh, you're terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, from there, we continue into space. Dave Bowman goes out and sees himself and himself and himself and himself. And he is a middle-aged man, an old man, a really, really old man, and a baby. A baby's space baby. Space and, baby. Uh, 
<laughs> well, I think I, I think I, they should have made the sequel, and it should have just been called Space Baby, Space but with an exclamation baby. point. <laughs> Uh, maybe space with a comma there. Space, baby. <laughs> okay. I, I want to talk about this sequence uh, because I think it is fascinating the way... Uh, it, this is the only sequence when he's in the room, the disco, classical, neoclassical disco room, bedroom. Yeah. This is the only sequence that I think is actually can demonstrate what I would call efficiency in storytelling. Oh, I, I, I see where you're going with this. Here we have a essentially uh, we have an objective in this sequence, right? To have this to have this exchange between the uh, you know to to get Dave uh, into this sort of the Star Child place, right? We need to get him. We need to to change him, and we need to have him answer some questions about himself. And we could do it in a highly linear way, but instead we have uh, Dave watching himself in different timelines at the same time. Am I saying that right? Well, I, I guess you can interpret it that way. Interpret it the way you want to interpret it. Well, I think that that can very much make sense, especially if you look at it like, you know, how Christopher Nolan took um, Matthew, Matthew McConaughey at the end of Interstellar, right? It's all of a sudden, it's, it's, you're, you're, you could also go through time and that's kind of what could potentially be happening. Maybe that's Another why this trope feels very familiar to me. It's possible. It's possible. Yeah. It also is just one version of Dave that we see kind of, kind of popping through time as he's aging and as time is wearing on until he finally is able to kind of piece things together and, and figure out what's going on with the, these aliens and stuff. And, and it's, he's, he's aging through the rest of his life while at the same time, uh, you know, it's almost like he's there for no time at all. Um, as he kind of comes to a realization who these aliens are and, um, you know, one interpretation is that when he knocks over the wine glass, that is him kind of sensing the aliens finally. And, and, and somehow, reaching for them and kind of finally taking that step to to grow and change and become the star child yeah i can see that and i think that that is that sort of works in parallel to the way i'm looking at it either way it 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 happens in a very efficient manner to get him to that realization uh and i i think it it actually really works in in this sequence i mean this is a sequence that that i think is well earned particularly after we have gotten a chance to get to know dave bowman uh, in the context of his relationship with Frank and Hal. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. Do you want to take on Space Baby? It's a representation of a new birth is what it is. Right? It's it's a new consciousness that that Dave Bowman has essentially become by um gaining this additional knowledge from the monolith and from this alien race, he is able to kind of move forward in evolution and become kind of the next step. Um, and now he is a new a new being in this next step, which is what these aliens are essentially. And it is a being that can travel through time and space and and everywhere. Um, and uh, that and so he returns to Earth as kind of the Star Child and is observing it at the end. And uh, different than the book, because in the book he then goes and destroys all the weapons that are floating around the planet. Exactly. Correct? 
Yes, exactly. And that's where I wanted to come back to the script and to that last narrator bit, because this was a piece that was actually taken out of the film because Kubrick didn't want to assign so much of the nuclear arms discussion to this film, right? He wanted to leave it more ambiguous. He And he didn't want to, he felt he already had done that with Dr. Strangelove, and he didn't want to go down that same road again. Right, right. And so getting rid of that in the movie actually left room for more discussion, more of that sort of, um, you know, the Mona Lisa smile discussion of, that is this film. In, in the narrator section, we actually hear more of this, right? He, he talks more about the destruction of, of the bombs. And I think that's part of the writing of this script. So much of the script includes massive sections from the book. Uh, a, a, a real hint that they were written sort of in parallel and, uh, you know, full narrative passages uh, that are not that sort of shorthand of screenwriting, but straight out of narrative fiction that, um, that, that I think are really interesting. And that's one of the things we get here, uh, which is describing the, you know, probing the orbit and, um, you know, making choices on behalf of furthering intelligence and exploration by destroying the weaponry of death. I thought that was a really interesting, uh, interesting choice because it's a it is it is a central choice in 2001, the book, uh, and, and is one of the key defining differences between the two, uh, the yeah. climax of the film. Yeah, and I feel like I like this version of it. I like not having them. Yeah, I needed to see some blown up bombs, Andy. I'm I'm on the on the other side of that fence. Well, and it goes to, to uh, show that, you know, Clark had a much more idealistic view of the world. And I think Dr. Strangelove and some of Kubrick's other films show that he has the very cynical view of the world. And uh, I think it makes sense that Kubrick's version did not have uh, the uh, star child doing all of that, whereas Clark's did. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's uh, I think that's right on. Where do you want to start talking about the effects? Boy, there there were so many interesting effects that they came up with the film. Um, it just is amazing. And you watch this film and you realize that this was kind of, you know, kind of a birthplace for so many of these amazing effects that they did. The rotating set that they built for the uh, uh, for the space for the ship, all the stuff they did to create the zero G effects, uh, everything with like the slit scan photography that they did to kind of uh, create the Stargate. And I mean, granted, that had been around already. But they they furthered it. You know, they did a lot more stuff with it. Um, and even just playing around with kind of the front projection, um, just the, the early precursors to blue and green screens, kind of the front projection that they were doing with what it was a retro reflective matting. They did that for Africa for all the scenes there and then for all the moon um, stuff. Uh, and we even talked about uh, kind of the middle ground when we talked about the movie Outland. That was kind of a middle point before blue and green screens really kicked in. Right. So just seeing how all of these effects started and really kind of began evolving, I think is so interesting. And and actually fantastic. And generally, the effects looked really solid. And I love that this is really kind of where Douglas Trumbull got his start as an effects guy. We talked about him in uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And That's right. I'm sure we've talked about him before in other projects, but he had been, I, I think he had been doing some stuff with a, a company that did stuff for, I think, NASA. And Kubrick had seen some of that stuff and he hired um, Con Peterson, uh, Lester Novros and, and Douglas Trumbull um, and had them do kind of some concept sketches and, and, and notes and things that really kind of 
the science of of all of this stuff, trying to make it as realistic as possible. And Trumbull, from that, ended up becoming his special effects supervisor. It's just amazing how he got his start. I know you have a controversial position on the music, that you deeply prefer Alex North's uh, original <laughs> score. Wait, did I read that wrong? <laughs> but it's nice of you to say that. I, oh. <laughs> I think Alex North's score is great. I love his score. I think it's great music. Um, I, you know, I've heard it played uh, orchestrally here in Phoenix. Uh, it's just great stuff. But it, it, you know, the temp tracks that Kubrick went with, um, we already talked about um, uh, also Sprock Zarathustra. I can never say it right. <laughs> also Sprock you know, Zarathustra. There you go. Um, you know, we've already talked about that, but all the other scores, uh, all the other pieces of music, I mean, they're so perfect for this film and they really help create that otherworldly feel that this film needs. And Alex North's score is great, but listening to it, um, and, and trying to imagine it fitting within the film, I just, I, I don't see it. I do feel bad for Alex North though, because he wrote all this music. I mean, almost put himself into the hospital working on this music, trying to come up with all these tracks for Kubrick. And then Kubrick never told him that he didn't use his music. And so North went to the premiere and was devastated that his music wasn't in it at all. Uh, I just can't imagine that. I can't imagine not telling him. That is just crushing. Isn't that brutal? Oh, it's really brutal. Yeah. Well, Andy, uh, how did this do at award season? I imagine you're going to say this was kind of an awards movie. Well, you'd think it was an awards movie. I mean, it it did win its share of awards, 14 wins and, and 10 other nominations. But it was a very divisive film. A lot of people loved it and a lot of people really hated it. Um, but at the Oscars, um, it, it did get uh, a, a one Oscar for special visual effects. Kubrick won for that. Um, uh, interestingly, the only other film that was nominated in that category that year was Ice Station Zebra which I haven't seen. I need to see that one of these days, but very light category. Kubrick did get nominated for director, but he lost to Carol Reed for Oliver. Uh, likewise, Oliver won for art direction and set decoration, beating 2001 there. And the producers won for uh, original screenplay. So Clark and Kubrick lost for that. Um, you know, it did it did well at the BAFTAs. It won Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Soundtrack, um, Best Film Lost to The Graduate. And the UN Award, I don't know what that is over at the BAFTAs, um, that lost to Stanley Kramer's uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. So, you know, it's it's a, it's a it did okay for itself at award season. I think this is one of those films that will always be remembered for what it is and less for the awards that it didn't get. How did it do at the box office? Kubrick had $10.5 to make this sci-fi epic of his, uh, $6.5 million of which went to the special effects, if you can believe that. The overall production uh, is the equivalent of $72.6 million in today's dollars, so it seems still pretty cheap considering. The movie premiered April 2nd, 1968, then opened wide the next day opposite another film we'll be talking about on the show soon, Planet of the Apes. It had a slow start, but once it found its audience, which is kind of the, the hippie drug crowd, which we didn't really talk about, but uh, it definitely found its audience, the ultimate trip after all, the film did end up becoming the highest grossing film of the year, earning $57.6 million domestically and $12 million internationally for a total gross of $481.6 million in today's dollars. Its subsequent releases haven't done much to change any of those numbers, but they do show that it can still draw audiences. All told, the movie had an adjusted profit per finished minute of $2.9 million in the end. 
It's nothing to shake a stick at, Andy. You can throw a bone up in the air at it. <laughs> Sometimes I just got to open the door. <laughs> I think it's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see the list of movies we've talked about on this very show. You can swipe over in your show notes, tap the word flick chart, and it'll take you right over to this movie where you can add it to your list and see where it stacks up to ours. Now, Andy, um, I'm a little worried about our own ability to be efficient in this ranking process. I know. After our conversation, I'm incredibly nervous about ranking this with you. I know. There's there's part of me that wants to try an all-in best two out of three rock, paper, scissors, and just wherever <laughs> it goes, we go with that. And and that would require me to spoil for you where it ended up on my list. I, I have an idea where it's going to end up on yours. And maybe, hopefully, we'll end up somewhere that's agreeable. Uh, or we could just do it the old-fashioned way, and I'll just fast-forward through all the rock, paper, scissoring. We'll just do it and see what happens, I guess. Okay. All right. Here we go. All right. First up, we have 2001, A Space Odyssey, or Numi in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Wow. Right out of the gate. Yeah. I just don't even... I I, I am going to be shocked for all of these. I guarantee it. So, uh, okay. Well, 2001. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let the battles commence. <laughs> uh, all, right. <laughs> all right. Here we go. One. One. Two, two, three, three paper. Oh. oh, that is so wrong. Things are looking up. So wrong. <laughs> 2001 A Space Odyssey or The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Uh, uh, Munchausen. I would definitely put Munchausen on first. Okay, but I think that we need to clarify this because it's not always about which what you would put on first. I think there are plenty of times where you have to say, what is the better film? Yeah, and I think I would put Munchausen on first. Uh, I, I'm so I'm so sad. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's why, Andy, I feel like uh, I am going to be such a ridiculous spoiler on all of these. Like we're truly making. Uh, no, I, up I'm, to... I'm getting it. Your yeah. yours is at the bottom ten of your films, and or yeah, I, I mean, it just went. It fell to the bottom so quickly. I, I, I just I, I'm so shocked that at that. But yeah. okay, let's just do it. I just want you to know, I don't think this is a good idea, and I don't think it's fair, but we'll do well, it. Well, I but I but what are we going to do? Like, there's no other way around it. I know. I don't know what to do. We've spent seven years locking ourselves into this. It has all come down to this. This is why Flick Chart fails Here, us. Here's here's where the real failure is, Pete, and I'm sure it's this way on your own chart. Is if 2010 is better than 2001, and I I feel like I already know the answer, and I'm so afraid to talk to you next week. <laughs> We shouldn't probably speak <laughs> right now about it, oh, but yeah. I, I feel like that uh, this movie, I, I don't enjoy my experience of watching this movie. I would rather pick up the book in any day. Like, that is my that is my choice. I don't enjoy my experience of watching it. I really enjoyed my experience of talking with you about it. I, it's not a movie I enjoy watching. So there we have it. And I don't think it's fair because I do think that there is enough in this movie for the people who do love it and for, you know, grand Kubrick fans. I think it should be higher than it already is. I should have lost that last one. You should have. You should. It's have. just not like that way on my it's not there on my own. No, and that's fine. I mean, that's that's the battle of flick chart. And this is why there are hate crimes. And it's it's already committed the ultimate hate crime that it lost that first one. Yeah. And it's only going to get worse. And so it's only going to get worse because it, it'll never it'll never now cross the, the top half, which is I, a shame. But it is a shame. And I don't think I can ever come back from that. And I worry about my reputation on the show 
I do too. I am scared. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> is it? Is it, Andy? I don't think you know how hard this is going to be. <laughs> well, I'm about to find out. Let's okay. let's do this. All, All right. right, ready? Yeah. One, one, two, two three. three paper. Rock. Oh, Andy. <laughs> Curse this gift I have. <laughs> okay. 2001 A Space Odyssey or Giant? <laughs> Go ahead. Say I don't it. even want to say it. You're <laughs> only embarrassing yourself, Pete. Go ahead. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> okay, here we go. I want to hear you say it. I'm not going to actually say it. You're not going to make me say it. it. We're not moving forward until you actually <laughs> said blank is better than blank. <laughs> this is so good. <laughs> this makes up for it. This almost, almost makes up for it. <laughs> <clears throat> Giant. <clears throat> that was hard to do. Oh, wow. All right, uh, let's do it. One, One, two, two three. three. Scissors. Paper. Oh, thank God. <laughs> oh, boy. 2001 A Space... <laughs> 2001 A Space Odyssey or Star Trek Insurrection. Oh, that's easy. That is easy for me. I would do Insurrection. I don't have to feel bad about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, oh boy. 2001, please. <laughs> okay. Oh, one, one, two, two three. three. Scissors. Rock. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, God. <laughs> this next one is great. Uh, the next one, uh, 2001 or Defending Your Life. Defending Your which, Life. Which I think is perfect because this moment, Pete, when you go to the afterlife, <laughs> this is what you will be watching. <laughs> I have to write a strongly worded note to Nathan Chase after this experience. <laughs> Flick chart has oh. failed us. Oh my goodness. All right. So good. 2001 A Space Odyssey for Defending Your Life. Absolutely yeah. 2001. Okay. One, One two, two, three. three. Scissors. Rocks. Oh, 2001 A Space Odyssey or The Magnificent Seven 2016 edition. A Magnificent Seven. <laughs> I can't even I can't even get to choose against good films. I know. Oh, we're in the it's bottom the half worst. here. Oh, it's so frustrating. Okay. <laughs> it's not like 2001 against all the president's men. No. <laughs> Oh. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> All right. One, One two, two, three. three rock. Oh, <laughs> God's sakes. <laughs> oh, oh man. God. This hurts so much. <laughs> somebody, I feel like as soon as we're done, somebody's going to come to the door and like take my membership away from like podcast association. There, there isn't even oh. such a thing, and I'll have no, my creds be, revoked. It'll be for movie viewer Yes, I can't You're get, not just, allowed to watch movies anymore. I'm going to try to go, go to my book. local theater. <laughs> local theater, and they just will lock the doors when they see me pull into the parking lot. 
Oh, my. Hmm. All right. 2001 A Space Odyssey or Ninochka. <sighs> There's more? <laughs> yes. Uh, I, uh, 2001. You know what, Andy? I need a break. You can have it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. There it was. 2001 A Space Odyssey or more James Dean, East of Eden. Uh, 2001 for me. East of Eden. Okay. One, One, two, two three, scissors, scissors paper. Rock. Oh. <laughs> Man, this is embarrassing. I, I am I am no star child here. This is, and, and yet I am the one who's cursed. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth. Well, 2001, A Space Odyssey, ended up at 302 out of 362. <laughs> <laughs> that is so low. That is a 17%. I couldn't even get any of the Oceans films that low. Damn, what was I doing wrong? <laughs> oh, Andy. Oh. Now um, I'm I'm going to refuse to ever watch an Oceans film again just for this reason. Principle. <laughs> uh, Holy cow. That's so... just... That defending your life thing will live with me forever, though. I will yeah. always picture you watching this moment in heaven or in whatever afterlife it is <laughs> for the rest of your life. You know, somebody oh. asked, I, who was it who asked in, in the Discord uh, channel just the other day, what was our biggest split that we'd ever had? And I think we hadn't had it yet. This is it. This I is the biggest is split uh, in, in our history. And we just we just made history, Andy. What do you think about that? Well, I guess there's that. Uh, I, I almost don't need to ask, but I will. How did this end up on your own personal ranking on Flickchart? Uh, it's pretty high. It's not. It's not in my top ten, but it is uh, in my top ten percent for for sure. Uh, it's uh, sixty three out of four thousand six. That puts it at ninety eight percent. Ninety eight percent. Mine, and you've got the other two. <laughs> I take it. <laughs> uh, actually, I, I don't. This, this is again. I went through great pain in doing my own ranking because I, I tried to do it as forthright and honest as I could. And this film, I swear to God, is the bottom of my. It's the last movie on my flick chart list. And wow. I don't think that's fair. According to the algorithm, I should not even rate this elsewhere. It's like no stars at all. <laughs> and and I don't I don't know that that's entirely fair. Uh, but I feel like I'm at in a weird place uh, because I have to I have to split the star rating and the heart rating uh, because of how I feel about just generally our conversation and the story and so for me uh it it's a you know one one and a half stars with a heart which is a very strange thing to reconcile interesting yeah interesting this is over on letterbox.com slash the next room well see i can see some people uh clearly not you <laughs> <laughs> rating this a five star with no heart like yeah. i think there are people who would do that uh which seems more fair to me but but hey okay uh, <laughs> uh so that uh I, my, i'm definitely a five star uh and a heart uh three and a quarter is where it lands 3.25 so that that puts it at a three and a half percent or three and a half out of five which you know i know i know i know and i'm i i'm sorry i feel like there's a disturbance in the force 
I uh, I think you're wrong, but I still completely understand your perspective because I, I think that there are probably a hefty number of people who feel that way. In fact, my New Year's audience proves that. Yeah, right. <laughs> what the <laughs> Yeah, it's it's not a film for everybody, but um but for those people who can really get into it, I think that there's a lot there. And so, yeah. Um uh I'm one of those people and you're not. And you know, that's okay. Well, it sure it made still for a allows for great conversation. Yeah. I I really appreciate it and I appreciate you not getting too mad at me except that flick chart thing. I'm going to be carrying that one for a while. Uh <laughs> where where do we go from here? Oh. Well, uh, we are going to be jumping to uh, to 2010, which uh, Peter Hyams um, wrote, produced, directed, and shot in 1984. Um, this is based on the 1982 book that Arthur C. Clarke wrote called 2010 Odyssey 2. And then, of course, he followed it up with uh, 2061 Odyssey 3 in 1987 and 3001 The Final Odyssey in 1997. Um, 2010 is the only film that had a, um, a cinematic version told. I have never read any of the sequels. Uh, I had only seen 2010. Had you read any of those other books? The first two. Uh, I haven't read the last two, but they're all easy reads. I'm going to try and bust through the the series uh, before we talk about 2010. I'd like to see how it ends. Uh, Clark has been adamant that 3001 is the end of the story he started with 2001. I am very curious how he gets there, how he is able to wrap up such a broad story in such a short time. So, um, yeah. I should not say in short time, in a very long time, but a short number of pages. Uh, right, so, there are there are very short books. There are very short books, and so I'm I am uh, I'm looking forward to that. I think that's going to be a fun uh, little exchange. Well, yeah, and it, you know it'll be a fun uh, rest of the year because for the next uh, you know uh, six months, pretty much we're we're looking at films and series that started in 1968, um, or we're all in 1968, and so it's going to be it'll it'll be fun, and I I think 2001 is an interesting place to start and uh yeah we'll see we'll see how the rest of the year uh, swings 1968 you come a long way baby 50 years star baby <laughs> exclamation point <laughs> well and if you want to hear more of us but you can't wait until next week's show you can support us over on patreon.com slash the next reel there you can get access to our exclusive members only weekend show the saturday matinee we talk about movie news and trailers, and we go head-to-head in our weekly challenge in which we put lists together of movies related in some way to the movie we're discussing that week. I'm sure one of our categories will this week will be uh, movies that we hate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's all sorts of other goodies, too, if you support us at different levels. So just head on over to patreon.com slash thenextreel. You can learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Next Reel. The Next Reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart, who runs Instagram, Ben Lott, who runs everything over on Twitter, and, of course, Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song Ragtime Instrumental as the theme to the show. You can find more about Eli on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. 
Amazon, in this case, has given many, many thousands of five-star reviews. As you know, I have a five-star review in my future because I rated it very, very low. Yes, you did, Pete. You rated it in last place. Let me just just reiterate. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like I need to defend myself yet again, even though just seconds ago we did this. I... I it would not have been that low if it weren't for flick chart hate crimes one after another after another. There are other movies <laughs> that I don't like more than this movie. That's just stated fact. Nobody took a crap on a suit in this movie. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, there's so, that. I do have a five star review, and uh, I uh, I would like to share it with you now. Please. Five star from Charles. This is very recent. This was just a few weeks ago. This is the film that launched my interest in real science fiction from real masters of science fiction, as opposed to, quote, space fantasy of Star Trek and Star Wars, for example. When I first saw this film, new in the theater, at the age of eight years old, I was mesmerized. Of course, nobody who saw the film at the time could understand its ending. I was no different. And I immediately went to the library looking for answers in the works of Arthur C. Clarke. This essentially activated my appetite for Clarke, Asimov, Matheson, Pohl, Bloch, Ellison, etc. at all, which is one reason that I and many others consider 2001 A Space Odyssey the greatest science fiction film of all time. Its special effects blow away even modern competition, and there's no one who can emulate or surpass the way Stanley Kubrick frames a scene. It's like Kubrick is experimenting on your brain as you watch superb wow so agree to disagree well my review is a one star but they also use the word superb Pete. <laughs> that feels like me one star by marco who says visually stunning superbly boring I can't help but think that you have to be the product of a much older generation to fully appreciate this movie. Our culture has morphed greatly over the decades since 2001 was released. Our perceptions of the world around us are different than those who were around in the late 60s. So watching 2001 for us in the newer generation is like looking back in hindsight at the minds of generations past. Having said that, 2001 is the worst movie I have ever seen. This is three hours of the most boring, uninteresting cinema I have ever witnessed. The vast majority of the film is pretty pictures set to elevator music, with mostly everything happening in what seems like real time. Some examples? One, want to know how long it takes to exit a spaceship for routine ship repair? For effing ever! (laughs) Two, how about the same scene of the moon rotating in the same damn window framed in gray with no editor cut away for 10 damn minutes with the same damn music playing over and over and over again? Three, do I need to know and see that it takes five whole minutes for a hatch to open up in space? Do I? Really? And how many times do I need to see it? Was once not enough? Add in 30 minutes of Dave unplugging slash killing Hal, 25 minutes of astronauts holding their helmets in pain from the annoying alien dog whistle radio signal with accompanying choir slash orchestral music, a 15-minute intermission of screeching madness against the pitch-black monolith of the TV screen, a 40-minute trip through a crayon-colored time-warped hyperspace Doctor Who tunnel with still shots of Dave trying out for Madonna's Vogue video, (laughs) and two or three months of real-time space flight with elevator music, and you have... The dullest movie ever made. I love that so much. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, dear. 
Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.